Hey guys, Mubarak Shah here, CPA and M&A advisor. Today, I want to talk to you guys about the actual acquisition. All right, so we'll be talking about a search fund or being a searcher, how to set it up, and we're going to be doing more episodes on that in the future. But today, we're going to talk about once an attractive target company is identified, what the closing process normally looks like. All right, and there's guys out there on search funds, and I kind of am putting some of this information together from my experience dealing with almost probably close to 100 now different acquisitions of being the M&A advisor, the QOV advisor, and some of my own as well. So the closing process overall, right, I want to set the stage is kind of negotiating the offer, right, going back and forth with the actual owner. And then once you kind of have some initial level of comfort, what you're going to start off with is issuing the LOI, the letter of intent. And honestly, I'm probably, let me make a note here, I'm going to probably have to do an episode just on that because the LOI itself is such an important art and so kind of vital to the whole process that you have to have an art to the letter of intent. And just on a high level, what this basically states is it talks about the purchase price you're going to kind of put on the business based on maybe a revenue target that they need to hit or just how you want to structure the deal it's not set in stone. It's not necessarily binding, but it's the start of the diligence. And really what you're asking from the buyer, I mean, from the seller here is you as the buyer, you're issuing the letter of intent to the seller and you're kind of providing them that, hey, this is what I'm looking to buy your business for. And what I would like from you is I would like a period of time, traditionally 90 days, sometimes 60 you know, when it's lower than that, it doesn't really make sense. And when it's higher than that, sellers get kind of antsy. And um, basically a few months period of time where you're able to do due diligence and it's exclusive, right? So they're not going to go around and shop the offer. They're not going to talk to anybody else. So this is the time where you as the buyer kind of get them locked up. So if you kind of think about real estate, it's like getting a house under contract, right? Once you get it under contract, they take it off the market, quote unquote, but you know, you still don't own it necessarily. Now you have to get into the financing. And so that's essentially what happens, right? So you're issuing the letter of intent and kind of putting together a term sheet. And this is where you are going to start your whole due diligence process, because now you have that kind of in with the owner. And now you're going to need to request financials, legal documents. Um, You're going to work with your lawyers to start drafting a purchase and sale agreement. You're going to start raising the actual debt financing and the equity financing. And this is where kind of the real fun starts, right? So obviously it takes a while and not all these LOIs are going to work, all right? Traditionally, averages are one in every three LOIs kind of go through. Um, And it's even less than that. So like maybe one in every six or one in every five get accepted, right? Because the seller might not initially love the terms that you're providing, right? This is where the negotiation happens. This is the sliding the table, the the piece of paper across the table to let them know how much you want to buy it for. And then this is what the seller is going to kind of forecast his dream life off of or his future, right? So you're giving, you're kind of telling him the kind of net amount of money or the gross amount, the total purchase price that's going to be involved. And typically also, Again, we're going to talk in another episode about the LOI, but it's so crucial because you also maybe sometimes at this point mention some of the kind of structure of it. Like, are you going to do an earnout? Is this going to be some portion seller financed? You know, is the seller going to retain some equity and roll it into the company? All right. So this is kind of where you're qualifying the seller and have done that part of the diligence, right? So essentially, you know, 
sometimes sellers just like to talk to someone who's interested in their business, but they're not even remotely ready to sell, right? Sometimes people want to check the market value of their company and they have no intent to sell. So getting access to the financial statements and establishing the general parameters early is a good way to validate the seller's commitment to the process. But really, you know, the LOI is non-binding, right? It's it's binding in the terms of exclusivity, but it's not necessarily, not everything is done. Just like how like when you're going to buy a house, just because you have it under contract, you know, if you unfortunately can't get the the loan or the money together, then the deal can't go through, right? And so this is what kind of stretches out the acquisition process. And sometimes, unfortunately, deals fall apart at the last minute. So you just because the LOI is signed does not mean you now get emotionally attached. All right. In fact, this is where you get to actually wake up and now do the real, you know, pull up your sleeves and now start doing the real due diligence in the company. All right. Uh, from a capital standpoint, there's like the acquisition financing usually includes it's like a combination of investor capital, bank debt, and seller financing. All right. So for search funds, typically what we end up seeing is that like we try to get the owner to roll in 10 to 20% of their equity, right? So you want the seller on board a little bit, right? Then you kind of have your equity investors, like the investors that put money up or your own cash or whatever that covers the remain uh, 30%. Right. So you have 20 percent from the seller rolling over into the future of the business, 30 percent from the equity and then about 50 percent from the debt. Right. So from the lenders, from the bank. All right. So it's all kind of different. Senior bank debt, you know, could be term loans, revolving facilities. Usually they comprise. Sometimes it's even more. Um, typically 50% is like safe. And then you can go higher depending on how confident you are in leveraging. Uh, we're entering into higher interest rate environments. So that might be less and less and you might want to go for more equity. But sometimes, you know, the actual percentage ended up be, and the interest coverage ratio, you ended up kind of putting up more that the bank, you know, as much as the bank could provide, right? Because you can always have the interest expense deducted and, you know, have the tax deduction in that fashion. Um, but then the seller financing, you know, Ideally, that helps a lot because sellers traditionally, you know, you want them to stay involved post-closing um, in some fashion to help you with the business, to run it, to be able to consult. And so there'll be different kind of instruments that you might build in. You might have to, you know, in the LOI, you might say they need to stay on for a year or they get an earnout, which is basically a structure that, hey, they get an additional amount of money or they get, you know, say you're going to give them a million dollars with it and 20% of that as part of the earnout. That means that, okay, 800K they'll get one way or another, but then the remaining 20% or whatever amount you put for the earnout, they have to hit a certain performance target or they have to stay with the company for a certain amount of time in order to get that, right? So <clears throat> that's actually sometimes what happens in bigger deals and bigger ones that you see in Silicon Valley and TechCrunch and those deals is that, yes, a big company will buy another company, but if your company gets bought out by Google or Amazon or something, typically they'll actually require you to sometimes have like a four-year earnout or a five-year earnout, And so that's why you see sometimes the CEOs or the owners of the company getting bought end up having to stay with the company in order to continue receiving the rest of the purchase price that they were negotiated in the LOI. All right. And then obviously the last part that I mentioned, the 30% investor capital, the equity financing, that's what you have to kind of discuss with the investors and kind of set up depending on their profile, what type of return they're going to get and um, how what kind of their upside is going to be. Right. So then what happens, though, is that while you're doing this due diligence, you're going to have to learn to kind of 
manage the company too, right? This is the real part of it. So now you have to start, you know, focus on analyzing and thoroughly understanding the business while you're building the relationships with the employees, customers, suppliers. And sometimes this is a little bit still of a tough part of the diligence because yes, now you're going out, you have maybe 90 days to now do your due diligence. But what happens potentially is that you might not be able to talk to the employees or you might not be able to talk to certain customers. Now, that's usually a rough sign because you do want the buyer to have, dis- I mean, the seller to have disclosed that to their employees. But in general, if the seller is not confident that you're going to necessarily move forward with the business, right, depending on how the LOI is structured, they might feel more concerned about telling the employees because they don't want the employees to get concerned or they leave and hurt the business and everything. So things are still happening pretty much behind closed doors, for example. Um, Now, the way that you as the buyer get equity is, you know, several ways, right? There's usually an equity grant upon acquisition, right? So upon successful closure of the acquisition, the principals receive an initial equity stake, right? So in the traditional search front fund, traditional searcher process, it's kind of really established where if you're a solo searcher, you get about 8.3% upon closing, you get about another eight and a third percent upon uh, vested over four years or so, and then you get another eight and a third percent over a certain um, period of like a, like a performance metrics. If you hit certain revenue benchmarks and accomplish certain objectives, usually it's listed out in the agreement when you're kind of putting together the actual purchase and sale agreement. But sometimes this negotiation is probably what you're going to have with the investors up front, even when you're creating your investor team. And definitely, you know, potentially also built in or at least mentioned a little bit, maybe not the exact structure, but at least the piece of it talked about in the LOI. Now, for self-funded searchers that didn't do the initial search fund process, it could be different and they're trying to get more of their equity and they may put more dollars in to the company. But then from there, you know, there's a different style or profile that happens. And so self-funded searchers, because they only bring in the investors at the end, they typically end up trying to own a larger share. So we see situations where they own 60, 70, 80 percent of it from themselves or from the equity basis because they're taking the personal guarantee with the debt. And that's kind of the different relationship. So we'll talk about that more. And in prior episodes, I've mentioned the difference between the economics of a traditional search versus a self-funded search. But that's kind of just on a high level how it works, right? And then finally, you know, the obviously the kind of thing you're always interested in is what is the exit strategy, right? So you're going to have subordinated debt repayments that you have to kind of calculate and understand that that's going to be a cash expenditure from your business on a monthly basis, right? And your goal is you want to kind of, you know, scale as a principal or as a buyer, your goal is to kind of scale up the company and triple it, quadruple it, and grow the company in four to seven years plus, and then, you know, try to flip it. Or the investors might be wanting a preferred return, which means that basically you pay them out an annual dividend. And um, that's really just that the fund itself can create liquidity for its investors. So that usually, you know, the traditional path is you want to sell the company in, say, five to seven plus years to like private equity or strategic or financial buyer, usually at a much better multiple than you bought it at. Right. So it's kind of like they call it multiple arbitrage or multiple expansion, which is, hey, you might have bought it at a two, three X multiple, but now you want to sell it at eight, nine, ten x to private equity, or you know, once you've grown the company and rolled it up and gotten it into a bigger and better stage and professionalized the company, now you can sell it to a larger, more sophisticated buyer base of potential buyers. 
Um, so those are kind of the different ways. And so, you know, the background of searchers is all over the place. Um, it's, you know, maybe a lot of them come from management consulting, investment banking. Um, there's also a lot of people like from operating experience, right? Uh, so it, it, it's a really a mixed background. And it's, it's really interesting to see, you know, pro- and it's, pro- it's split about half and half in terms of whether there's a single principal or partner and, you know, a variation between kind of capital raised and how many search fund investors there are. Typically, you'll see anywhere from 10 to 12. On the higher end, I've seen 20. And on the most, you know, smallest end I've seen is like three, like one guy put up a majority of the capital. And so it depends on if the principal or the searcher, right, if you have a relationship with the family office or, you know, you're kind of being contracted by them or you're working with them to buy businesses and they're investing in you, then that typically happens. But, you know, there's some really interesting statistics and really in the kind of uh, description, I'm going to put the study to some search funds from Dartmouth on kind of like, the per, uh, purchase price minimums, medians, maximum. So like what we t- see typically for search fund acquisitions, the median will be around 5 million. You know, the search fund investor capital raised would be around 2 million. And obviously there's maximums and minimums all over the place, but the company revenues at purchase will be around 7 million. And, you know, it can be much smaller. It can be as high as 40 million, right? The company EBITDA, that's usually like, around a million to 500k and maybe on the higher end three four million um obviously you want the best margin as possible the median ends up actually being around 15 to 20 percent but the higher the better and all these statistics are just interesting to know so you can kind of figure out where your deal fits into the whole play right and so you know learning all this and just knowing it from a high level you have to just ask yourself like do you really want to be a searcher Right. After learning about this, the diligence, you have to spend time thinking about like, is now the right time in your life to start searching? And it's very personal, right? It's different for everybody. Traditionally, people start thinking about it in their early 30s, very late 20s, but they're searchers in their 30s and 40s and 50s, right? And, you know, the thing is, a 27 year old might be all right taking on a personal guarantee when they're kind of a single person, maybe, but a 35 year old may be more uncomfortable with that. And so, you know, there's a whole bunch of different variations and backgrounds and you got to think about why you want to search, right? It's, it is an incredible uh, wealth creation vehicle and and there's some very great benefits, but you know, you have to figure out, are you willing to leave your job and leave your salary, right? Are you willing to take the opportunity risk and cost that comes with that? And are you really comfortable with taking on the role to be entrepreneurial, right? It's, running a small or medium-sized business is much different than kind of working a job, right? You're taking a leap into leadership. And so that's why there's a lot of successful searchers that have backgrounds in the military and in the army because they have this leadership role and they're able to kind of translate some of those skills that, yes, they might not have the industry know-how or the financial technical abilities, but they're able to kind of lead and run a company. And so all of your prior experiences kind of lead you to the point of, you know, understanding whether or not you're going to be successful. And so, you know, just make sure you understand that. All right. Um, And so hopefully this helped. If you have any questions, always feel free. You can reach out to me. You can text us at 516-417-4941. And I'll put our email in the description as well. But if you like this, you know, leave a review. Let us know if this is useful and what type of content you'd like to hear about. And in the next coming episodes, I'm going to be talking more about setting up the search fund, the specific tools, the processes, 
um, how to identify companies and how to focus more on the search process. Uh, so yeah, hopefully that helps. Stay tuned and I'll see you guys next time. Take care.